Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk. Book Talk is a weekly podcast book club, and we are reading The School for Good Mothers over four episodes. This is the first episode of the first four chapters about the first first four chapters i still love that people think that like on the podcast we're gonna read the books to you like that just that is every time i explain it (laughs) it's so hard to explain it because i need people to realize that you're going to read it on your own and then we're going to talk about it but i do feel like people are like so you you read me the first four chapters i'm like that would be two and a half hours of a podcast once a week no i don't it's an audio (laughs) book okay yeah you can buy the audio book i don't think anyone wants to hear me reading no i don't think we'd be (laughs) good at that voice actress no (laughs) (laughs) all right so in this first section we meet frida she's a new mom living in philadelphia with her baby harriet after a messy divorce um in which her husband gus ends up with his mistress susanna frida is doing her best to survive and raise harriet but it's not enough and she breaks one day leaving baby harriet all alone by herself She's caught, CPS is called, and she is in serious trouble now, and an overbearing government steps in to try and, quote-unquote, fix it while leaving baby Harriet with Gus and Susanna, but to be determined if they're actually helping or hurting the situation. What are you thinking so far? How are you feeling about the book? I'm feeling extremely cringy about this government, (laughs) but overall, I like the book. I think it was really easy to get into. I think that her writing is captivating and easy to follow. I feel awful for Frida, for what she did, for the baby, for really everybody involved in this situation, except for Susanna, who really annoys me. (laughs) But other than her, (laughs) I'm liking it so far. What are you thinking? Yeah, I really like it so far. I'm interested. It's surprising to me that We've been, we've now gone through 75-ish pages of the book and we're not at the school for Good Mothers yet. So it's sort of a long intro, but I think we know how this court case is going to go. It's not going to go well for her. I like that she wrote Frida as a character who's kind of living in the gray. She is not somebody that you completely empathize with because she does have resources that a lot of other moms don't have. She could have called somebody. She could, she can afford that luxury. She does not have a great support system, but she does have something. We can talk about that a little bit more later, but you empathize with her enough because you know this, you know, extremely frazzled, underslept, overwhelmed mom, but this this person has some options and chooses not to use them. And not that she's actively choosing either. She's in a, a state of consciousness where she's barely making it. Uh, but I like that she's not distinctively good or bad. I think that will make the rest of the book interesting and have allow for some more deeper discussions about what that really means. Right. Jessamine picks almost the perfect act to have cps involved because it's not bad enough like she didn't hit her or you know she didn't leave her there for like the weekend but it's bad enough that you're like oh i wouldn't have done that (laughs) especially because she has options she could have called Susanna, even though she doesn't want to she could have called her mom she could have hired a babysitter there's all the others these other ways that she could have dealt with the situation so it's almost the perfect quote-unquote crime for our main character to commit because we feel for her and at the same time we're like yeah that was a fuck up 
this book is clearly taking place in the near future. So the CPS of today obviously probably would have been involved in the situation, but the extent to which they are now monitoring her and what she's going through probably wouldn't have happened to this extent if this was her truly her first offense. I am very close to this story and plot because my sister is a foster mom and she has adopted out of foster care. And actually my nephew was put into foster care initially because of abandonment. So things exactly like this, except he wasn't left in a safe home for an hour. He was left in homeless shelters for many hours, but so I, I feel like I understand a little bit more from the CPS side of what would get a child taken away and what the process would be like. And I know a lot about these supervised visits because my sister would take the foster kids to these visits. So I feel like this is, again, catering right to my interest base. It's definitely going to ask us questions about the role of the government in monitoring parenthood. And I think we can agree there's cases where the state needs to intervene. And there's also, and my sister would agree with this too, you know, the ultimate goal of something like this would be to reunite the mom with the child. It, she's clearly learned her lesson. She's clearly repentant. She's clearly taking steps to better herself or better the situation, although we can debate how concrete they are. That should be the goal for a foster care situation or a CPS involvement in general. I don't have the same closeness to situations that are involving CPS, but I do know some friends and people who have adopted out of foster care as well. I think that in today's CPS, the goal is to reunite the mom and help her and give her the resources to be the mom she wants to be and to ultimately the reunification. Doesn't feel like that's the goal of this government. It doesn't feel like that's the goal of these visits or of, of what's happening to Frida. I think that's where it differs for me. It's also important to note, like you said, that the baby was left in a safe home for a short period of time. And while that is not okay, and the baby, so many things could have happened, it could be worse. And it doesn't feel to me like that should be a situation where Frida doesn't see her baby for nine weeks. Insane. Also, who is that helping? Not the baby, not the mom. She's also up against this insane social worker and this insane situation that is so outside of her control. And I feel equally as frustrated as she does like you're putting us in this impossible situation the baby is very uncomfortable this situation is uncomfortable I'm uncomfortable I'm sad the baby's stressed she hasn't napped and now it's like act normal perform for us the way we want you to perform go I want to hear what you think about the visits in that situation it seems to me like you would want to be watching Frida just love her daughter just support her daughter in whatever way that looks like does that look like play does that look like you know the baby sees her for the first time in three weeks and she just wants to lay in her arms and talk to her she doesn't want to play or do anything and I don't understand why there has to be this play interaction especially when they have no regard for the baby's routine when they're coming at dinner time or when she hasn't napped sometimes kids don't play sometimes you're just comforting them sometimes they're having a temper tantrum and you can't turn it around to a fun play date in under 30 minutes like it just doesn't work like that I do know that they're looking for something specific. So they're trying to see certain actions or interactions. That's probably why there's this emphasis on play. But you're right. So much has to happen in order for a child to want to play. And it seems like the social worker just does not care. She's already written Frida off in her mind. She has no interest in seeing this through or even recognizing the pain that Frida must be in. And I feel for social workers, they must just be 
empathetically exhausted <laughs> from dealing with this all day, every day. But all the social workers I know would never act like Mrs. Tor- Mrs. Torres is acting in this situation or have like this unending stream of empathy, which is why I could never be a social worker because I feel like so many of them have so much empathy and just not even sure how you can survive in the world with that level of it. But yeah. And then the beginning when they're in the scene, they're eating the cake or the app, the gluten-free apple crumble um, and, and taking time away from the visit. So that when Frida gets in the room with Harriet, they only have like 23 minutes left. You can't do anything in 23 minutes. You can't even establish a safe place for the baby to feel comfortable to play in 23 minutes. So the expectations just seem like there's no chance that Frida, no matter the fact that she now has resources, now it, now it's irrelevant that she has friends or her parents or money. It's irrelevant. She's in a situation it feels like she doesn't have a way out of successfully. She's not going to win the court case. At least step one, she doesn't have a way out. One thing that always struck me about foster care is when you're fostering a child, you get like a, a check from the government just for your labor for taking care of this child yet moms do not get the same financial support from the government in fact all they get are penalties if they don't meet nutritional guidance if they don't meet educational guidance if they don't meet certain levels of care if they have something like what happened to Frida happen this is funny how there's this asymmetry between clearly we know and can recognize that someone who is taking care of a child who's not the parent deserve some financial remedy for this and yet there is no help monetarily for Frida obviously we you know she is very privileged so she might not necessarily need it but that that parallel always strikes me but also it's these general support systems that Frida that we don't have for for women or for single moms even if you have she doesn't have a ton of money she's also borrowing it from her parents which comes to the whole other level of emotional guilt that she's struggling with Um, But there doesn't seem to be enough resources as far as maybe emotional resources. So people for her to talk to or therapy groups. I think we're seeing some of the same themes we saw in the push where the main character is like, I just want someone to tell me, to talk to me about something that's not my kid, to recognize that I'm a human beyond my kid, or to just realistically talk about how much I'm struggling with this and how I'm not doing it all perfectly. And I feel like there is that divide that's making it really hard for Frida to even ask for help because of the society we've created for moms, even if she has the resources where she doesn't need the foster care check. But I have never thought of that, that they're giving people money to raise this kid because they know that it costs that and they're giving them resources and we don't give that to moms. And even if they didn't need it, what would that emotionally say to moms if we gave them more resources and help just for doing this really hard job? Would they feel more supported? Would they feel like people were recognizing and validating what they were going through. Would that help? Good question. The state also is ignoring or potentially even penalizing Frida for going through a really difficult time. So first she already has depression. She's off her medication when she's pregnant, which we've talked about in past episodes, the difficulty with not knowing whether you can take SSRIs when you're pregnant with people not recognizing the costs and the, what they're asking moms to give up and the lack of scientific understanding of the combination of SSRIs and mothers' bodies, like in pregnant bodies. Don't even get me started. But then she has this extreme betrayal of Gust cheating on her three months into her uh, Frida being alive, right? Or was she pregnant? Harriet being alive, yeah. Oh, Harriet. Was she pregnant when she discovered the pictures? 
No, but oh, it, it had was been going just, on while she was right. It was like recently after Harriet was a newborn. Oh, right. And then he ends up with her and he tries to make it work. But the worst part of this whole affair, I mean, the whole affair is disgusting and awful. I hate hearing about people having affairs when their significant others are like at home taking care of this baby and in a part where they're already struggling with their identity and with their bodies and with themselves, just made worse by the fact that they found somebody who's not going through anything and they're not supporting them. But also once he decides that he's going to leave Frida for Susanna, he keeps coming back and sleeping with Frida. He's just like dragging her along in this horrible emotional state. Oh, you want her to leave, but you know that again, she has this newborn. She can't leave the house as much. She's not feeling herself. And the person who's familiar to her is simultaneously comforting and destroying her. It's crazy. I hate him. And I hate the name Gus. <laughs> the system is definitely set up to to what we were saying earlier. The system is set up for a two-parent household. That's just the expectations, finances, everything is set up to expect that you have two parent households and one breadwinner whose salary can pay for both of you it's just incredibly hard daycare is so expensive it's incredibly hard for two working adults especially in this case where they're in a city separate from their families one thing i like about what jessamine's doing here is that frida is financially probably able to afford daycare but putting a kid in daycare is more than just having the money or not having the money especially when you are a part-time parent like she is because Gus has the kid half of the week as well so she gets this such limited time because of Gus's decisions to leave their family she only has a couple of days with the baby so it's not just about can she afford daycare and could she afford daycare and rent we don't really know but even if she could she'd be missing out on all this time with her baby so there's just more to these decisions um and I like that we're living in the gray area. Also, what the court is asking, which is a meta question, I think Jessamine wants us to ask is, why is Frida's motherhood and the goodness of her motherhood being questioned, but the goodness of Gust's fatherhood not being questioned? Well, I think in this case, because he didn't leave the baby. Yeah, but he left. No, he left Frida and the baby. Because he's he didn't get caught. He did get caught. Because <laughs> he's not I mean, like, what he did. I know, I know, I know. I'm saying he didn't get caught. Like, if he's ever messed up as a parent, he didn't get caught messing up as a parent specifically. He messed up as a parent when he left them. And he definitely messed up as a husband, but he didn't leave the baby alone. And that's why I feel like it's just, it's not black and white that what she did was bad, but how they're treating her is worse. I would say that leaving your recovering partner and your child to go sleep with someone else is neglect. I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> I just think in the eyes of CPS. Right. Of course, that's what I'm saying. Not. This is clearly right, yes, differing exactly. expectations. And it's all on her shoulders when she's doing this by herself. And Gust has Susanna, who has flexible work hours and who can think about the baby nonstop and take all this time and cook an apple crisp and all of these things that absolutely can't. No, I mean, Gus is a horrible person, but I think that... He never leaves the – and I do not want to spend any more time than the sentence defending this man who I do not like, but he doesn't – he constantly leaves the baby in the care of somebody else. Yes, it's his wife who he is neglecting and who he's an awful person, but he knows the baby is safe with her. It's So I feel like there's just – Clearly the baby is not her motherhood. safe with Frida, though. I know, but he doesn't know that until I think now. he put Frida in an extremely emotionally – damaged position for someone who already had mental health issues and none of that is getting factored into the judgments of her she's expected to be not only a perfect mom but a perfect saint under 
this horrific situation where she has to deal with Susanna all the time. And of course, Susanna looks nothing like her, is like voluptuous and has red hair and freckles and does Pilates. And she feels just like completely opposite of that. Yeah. To be clear, I have all the empathy for Frida. And I think the situation is extremely fucked up. <laughs> I feel like their definition and they're trying to define what a good mom is. Like you were talking about, she needs to be a saint is so crazy. The expectations for moms are crazy. It's like, yes, you need to provide top tier level of, of every single thing. Education. I, mean, I can't remember the list, but the list goes on and on of all of these things they're expecting her to do. Does she get any screen time? Does she get no screen time? Are you with her constantly? Well, why doesn't she do alone play? Well, if you're like letting her play alone, then are you ignoring her? Like there is no right answer to anything that they're doing. Um, and she, they're giving her no freedom to like make those decisions that are best for her family or for her when they're looking at it through such a clinical lens of if she's a good mom or not. I do think she's a good mom. Well, I think she wants to be a good mom. We definitely have almost no empathy for neglectful moms, I think. Yeah. We let dads get away with a lot. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any predictions about what the school is going to be like? I can't even imagine it because I'm still shocked they put cameras in every single room of this woman's house to see if she's remorseful or sad enough. Again, because we all cope differently. And what you have humans analyzing if she's going to be okay or even anything they're using to analyze if she's has enough feeling that you're determining she could have her kid back. It's, I don't know what the school could be, but I'm scared for Frida. What do you think is going to happen at the school? I don't know. I thought this would be more sci-fi-ish than it is so I don't know I guess it's like what we don't know is how the school is going to try to reform her is it through like behavioral interventions is it through brainwashing are they going to be like put this chip in your head put a camera in your eye like I don't know so that's where I'm excited to go from here although I have a ton of anxiety for Frida this is a I just think things are going to go off the rails in many many ways and I'm hoping we land somewhere with a good take home because otherwise we're in for a anxiety inducing <sighs> couple of weeks. I know. I hope she gets the baby back or at least gets to see the baby. I also think it's crazy to expect her to heal in any way or to be a whole person in any way without having any contact with the literal child she birthed. How can you even be a person? It's crazy. I am also anxious to see what this school is like I think that Frida is so remorseful though and she wants to do anything she can to get Harriet back and to keep Harriet in her life which makes me nervous for the lengths that she'll go to and what she'll agree to at the school for when they promise her Harriet in return that's how I feel about the surveillance we have this idea in our culture that you know if you have nothing to hide then why do you care if somebody's watching or if someone reads all your texts or reads all your emails and we just don't realize how everything we do can be perceived in multiple different ways. So she's not eating right now, for example, because she's really severely depressed and she's trying to hide how much weight she's lost. From her side, that is a sign of her grief. But from the other side, it could be that she can't even take care of herself. She can't even feed herself. How would she be able to be a good caretaker? So this role of, you know, we think that increased surveillance is the answer. or We think that we don't have anything to hide and we're blameless like Gust and Susanna. But if you put cameras in their house, I'm sure there are things that people would flag as inappropriate or incorrect. Oh, 100%. Also, I think you just are 
trying to make people fit into these molds of what you think you know a good mom should look like or and there are so many different ways to be a good mom that are not the cookie cutter mom who has extreme privilege and financial resources and doesn't have to work whatever it is or wants to work it doesn't matter there's not one way to be a good mom there's also not one way to grieve when things are taken away from you or when you're going through an extremely emotional situation so She's constantly trying to be like, do I look like I'm remorseful? Let me go in this room and cry when however she's handling it or however she's emotionally dealing with it is also valid and okay. But in the eyes of people who are surveilling her, there is a couple of things that you need to be doing to show that you're remorseful, which feels very inauthentic. And yeah. It reminds me of good neighbors and the different types of family structures that we saw in that book where you can have the family that has the really nice outside of the house but are actually quite terrible to their children inside the house and then you have you know the people who don't have a lot but really listen to their kids and pay attention to them and those two things are not mutually exclusive but it's interesting that this is this is asking those questions again we love a mother child book on this podcast we do despite not being mothers <laughs> if we ever become mothers someday i feel like we've got an entire library of what to do and not to do so you know there's that I'm scared. Okay, well, next week we are reading chapters five through the end of chapter eight. Katie, what are you reading right now? I just finished reading Our Country Friends by Gary. I forget his last name it's right like now. like Stuttgart is the way I want to say it, but I don't think that's right. Great. Gary starts with an S and the book is called Our Country Friends. I just really didn't like it. I wanted to like it and I forced myself to finish it because I have read not enough books and I didn't read it all my vacation. So I'm like behind and the reading this book reminded me of two things. One, we read for fun. So this was not fun. <laughs> this is a scathing review. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But this was not fun. And also I'm like, why am I trying to finish a book I don't want to finish so that I can get a reader count for Instagram and be like, I'm reading enough books. It's not the point. But anyways, I did it. So because I'm not perfect. <laughs> so I read the book. What did you not like about it? Because you liked it when you were starting off. The premise of it is these six friends who've known each other for varying lengths of time throughout their lives, they're all in their 50s now, go to stay at one of their country houses during the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I think what's hard for me is the characters are extremely unlikable and the book is really hard to get into. They're not unlikable and then the story is interesting. I feel like the people, like there's one main character, the actor, he his story, he's too much. He's completely unrelatable and unrealistic. And you're inside of his head and you're like, this isn't real. This isn't a human's mind that I'm in. And the tropes just all seem annoying and unrealistic. There's a couple of good moments, right, where people are learning things. There is a one good falling in love scene. But I feel like I'm reading entire books for one or two pages that are okay. It's just really hard to get into the story. The COVID line or like storyline really isn't bothering me as much as I thought that it would or was nervous that it would. Um, and I also watched the morning show, finished it, and it goes through the COVID storyline. And I was like, I wonder how I'll feel. Um, and it didn't affect me like I thought that it would. 
the end of the morning show did a little bit more because they're pretty sick, but I just found it really hard to follow. Um, you're inside of like six different people's heads and there's a narrator who comes in and out. So you're like, even who's telling you the story is confusing. It's just really hard to get into. I don't know. I get the 3.5 rating on book on Goodreads. I'm like, this is not it. Wow. Scathing. Okay. I'm glad we didn't read it on the podcast. Same. Was it was on there and that's why it was on our like potential list. And that's why I read it. Cause I was like, we'll see. I need something kind of fun, but I just hated at every single scene. Like even the, like, even like the hookup scenes or the dinner scenes, like I didn't like any of it. <laughs> okay. I'm done wow. now, but it was bad. Wow. Don't read it. Scathing. <laughs> the other books I've read this year, I liked, but nothing that I loved. And so that's upsetting. I don't know. I feel like I read so many good books in 2020 and 2021. I just, I don't know how I picked them and how I'm doing such a bad job now. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to forecast what books you're going to like. It's no. hard to use other people's ratings as a good benchmark because there's books that other people really love that I don't love. And there's books that other people don't love that I love. So it's tough. I know. Oh, so I'll let you know what I pick up next. I just got from the street. Someone was putting out Jillian Flynn's Sharp Objects. Oh. Which I was like, this is good enough to be made into a movie yeah. or a TV series. So it must be pretty good. Is it? I don't know. I oh, haven't, haven't started, started it yet. Just I just picked it. it up from the street. Okay. Yeah. Love walking around Brooklyn and just finding books. Maybe I'll do a little poll on Instagram and be like, what are some books you have loved? So maybe if someone, because like we've said previously in the pod, if there's a book that you loved or said was your one of your top favorite books I'll read it. I think that's maybe what I need to do next. Hello. What about Otessa? I can't risk it right now. <laughs> okay, fine. You're too, you're in a fragile place. But it is, she, a year of rest and relaxation is on my list for this year, but I just have to read something I enjoy. This School for Good Mothers, though, is what I wanted. Like, it's a fast-paced, like, thrilling. I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm in the story. So. Well, I read two books. I liked them both. I don't know if I would recommend them to you specifically we'll see if maybe I entice you after I describe them I was cracking up listening to you describe the Otessa book Eileen Eileen and me being like okay at me if anyone liked that <laughs> I'm like it's disgusting her apartment's like, disgusting and her truly, job is disgusting terrible. she's disgusting and I loved it I was like wait a minute all right so hopefully these are better let's hear them give me a synopsis give me the rundown the first book is called Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. She wrote A Separation, which I haven't read. Intimacies is about a court translator. So this is someone who is listening to the prosecutor or the defense or the witness in their language and then relaying it into another language. So it gets really into like the act of translation and how the translator becomes this like film through which words travel and the meaning of words and how for her, like the words even lose their meaning as she's just like a conduit and becoming this other person. It was very dark and gray. I liked it, but I don't, I don't think it has general appeal. She's really going through a lot and she's in a foreign country. She's the word intimacies to us has a positive connotation, but I think Katie is using it in a negative connotation. These times where Things are very intimate, like talking into someone's ear, except the ear of the person you're talking into is like a dictator who's committed war crimes. So it's not, yeah. 
the face that Katie's making is one of shock. Yes, that's exactly that's what she's dealing with. And that's the person she finds herself empathizing with because she's listening to his words. And then she's has that ooh, that repulsion of this closeness that they've developed. Is there a I guess I'm trying to figure out what kind of book this is. So is it written like a fictional memoir or is there a storyline plot and there's some sort of ending to it? Like a, like a climax and an event and then an ending. She is dealing with a relationship, a new relationship, being in a new city, not necessarily understanding everything that's happening to her and trying to figure out where she wants to go next. So she's in this transitionary period in her life. She's trying to decide if she wants to stay on as a court translator, if she wants to stay with this person that she's been seeing, if she wants to stay in the lives of these people. So she's in a foreign country. I think she's in the Netherlands. Okay. So it's a lot of that trying to understand where she is and what's going on. And that is a feeling that sort of like transient unresolved feeling is one that I relate to. It's not necessarily a comfortable place to be in. Mm -hmm. I think it ends on a satisfying place, but okay. It's, yeah, it's a lot. It's a it's a thinker for sure. Okay. Interesting. Honestly, one of the better book descriptions I've heard of books you've read recently. I'm like, I might pick that up. I think, well, I don't know. Check and see if A Separation has better ratings. I like her writing style. Okay. Yeah. The other book I read is Cherish Farah by Bethany C. Morrow. This is very much in the style of The Perfect Ruin. So much that I almost couldn't read it. So I was like, I just got out of Ivy's head. Now you're going to put me into pretty much the same character. Oh, no. <laughs> Except she's like a 16-year-old. And it Bethany has written young adult books. And she has emphatically been like, this is not a young adult book, despite the fact that the two main characters are 16-year-old women. Girls. Girls. Yeah. It was actually a book that scared me like I was genuinely like I would think that this is horror apparently it's called like social psychological thriller or a social thriller or social horror genuine horror like a couple of the scenes are like whoo it was a lot okay I won't be I think it was a little bit longer than it needed to be it was also very I found it difficult to follow what was happening because you're inside the main character's head she's an unreliable narrator She's trying to perceive the situation or she is perceiving the situation in a certain way. Multiple times you get the sense that maybe she's perceiving it wrong, but it's very difficult to sort that out. And she has a very strong point of view. Interesting. It was not my favorite, but I do think if you're looking for like kind of a more fucked up book, there you go. (laughs) Oh, this one will scare you. And this is on today's wrap of books we're loving. Okay. The main character in this book, Farah, reminds me of Ivy, except her parents have not died, yet she still has this, like, reproach of her parents and thinks that her parents have ruined her life and is sort of, like, very suspicious of them. And it's funny that we had Ivy, who was very vengeful and mistrusting of other people, but her parents were gone, and she had this idea that her parents, if they had not died tragically, she would be much more well-adjusted. And this book is like, nope, sociopaths and psychopaths, they exist. I don't love that. Yeah. No. I don't know. So if that's the type of book that you're into or that's the type of book you want to put in between two feel-good books, you can do that. <laughs> I won't be doing that. Um, I did just remember, so I texted Jen yesterday and I said I got a notification for UPS that I got a package delivered to my old apartment. Can you check? And she 
messaged back and said, you have four packages here. Did you not change your address? (laughs) So I was like, no, I did change my address. I don't know what happened, but one of them is a book of the month package. So, um, yeah, you know, I still occasionally do that. So judge me. I don't care. But, um, it's, so we'll see what I know that I can't remember what I ordered in it, but I'm going to read one of those. And they're usually, I usually pick ones that are like a little bit happier. Um, so we'll see, maybe I'll read one of those tonight and love it. I think the book that I'm going to read next, which is on my hold shelf for me, but this, the library, the Brooklyn public library is closed on Sundays now, which is extremely inconvenient. Why? Staffing shortages. Oh, I know. But one of the books that's waiting for me is Wahala, which I've heard really good things about. Same. And I think that will probably, I'll probably read Sharp Objects just to get it, get something going while I wait for a day I can go to the library or maybe Anxious People. I also just got Lucy Foley's book, The Paris Apartment. Oh, I heard that one was good seems too. like a murder mystery mm-hmm. book. So we'll see. Okay. Well, hopefully next week I've read a couple books that I like. <laughs> Okay, see you next week. Okay, bye. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney. With production support from Dan White, our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week.